I'm home. This is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look into video gaming from the classic era until today. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number nine of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Uh, I did a quick check through social media and emails, uh, still no uh, correspondence coming my way, but that's okay, I'll keep right plugging along uh, as long as I can come up with topics to talk about. Um, if you want to get a hold of the show, you can do so by dropping an email at arcadeaddictbrian, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Also, there is a phone number for voicemails. That is area code 734-743-2433. And also, as I said, we I have a social media footprint for this show. On Facebook, you just search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. On Twitter, it's at arcadeaddict underscore B. On Instagram, it's arcadeaddictbrian. And on Tumblr, it is tumblr.com slash blog slash confessions of an arcade addict. So there are ways to get a hold of me, and I check them periodically. And if you uh, send us, send me, I should say, send me uh, some correspondence, I'll put it up on the show and we'll talk about what you uh, have uh, messaged me about. So. Without any further ado, we've got a show to do, so let's do that, and we will go on to Arcade Rundown. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept it, is to make Stefan believe Thompson's information. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Arcade Rundown. Arnie's Place in Westport. Okay. This was an arcade that I used to go to infrequently because it was hard to get to. More often than not, I would go there with uh, my friend Mark. Um, Whenever he wanted to go to an arcade and I was tagging along with him, uh, he had quite a few choices because, well, quite honestly, he had a car. Um, we would go to Spanky's, we would go to Milford Rec, we would go to Gompers. Every once in a while, we would go to the arcade at the Connecticut Post Mall, and we would also go to Arnie's Place. Arnie's Place is was, I should say, an arcade that was in Westport, Connecticut from... 1982 until 1994. Uh, the owner was Arnie K, and he basically, from almost the day the arcade opened, he was fighting with uh, the local townspeople, city council, you know, those type of people from the moment he proposed to open the arcade. And that was more because, um, well, I'll just say it without trying to put too fine of a point on it. Westport is a rather hoity-toity town. A lot of people with money live out there. They certainly did when I was a kid. And they were just... (laughs) 
you know, they do as rich people do. You know, they want their town a certain way, and they were against anything that could, how should I say this, anything that could even bring an inkling of the quote-unquote undesirable element. Um, now, Arnie himself, from all reports, and I will get into an article in the New York Times about this a little bit later, but Arnie, all he want, basically what he wanted to do was open an arcade, and, ever, and considering he was fighting you know almost everyone there you know and he didn't take a lot of guff from people apparently because he threatened to in you know open the place up to the hell's angels and threatened to turn the arcade into a pornographic theater you know pretty much everything that the people you know the people living in uh westport didn't want but it was just you know, it was just a silly, ridiculous thing, and the arcade probably would probably still be going at least into the early 2000s, but by the time, you know, by the time 1994 came around, arcades were dying. You know, most of them were dead. You know, I can certainly remember in when I left Connecticut in 1993, all of the arcades I grew up with, with the exception of Milford Rec, um, and also, um, the arcade in the Connecticut Post Mall, which got moved to another part of the mall, those were, like, the only two dedicated arcades in the area. I do know that there's a place, I talked about it when I talked about Spanky's Arcade, uh, there was a place in, uh, further up the street from where Spanky's was, that's called the Crazy Eights, uh, arcade, but that was a shell of an arcade. And, you know, it was just a small storefront um, with maybe like 20 games, if I remember correctly. And it was just, that was just a sign of uh, number one, the um, video games in general were moving more towards the home. Um, with the, it started with the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1985, and it just kept going from there. Um, 1994 was just before the PlayStation came out. I think the PlayStation came out in 1995. And when you have games that are, at the very least, close to the arcade experience, you know, you're why would you go out to an arcade? You know, why would you try to get your parents to take you? Why would you, you know, try to get, you know, ride your bike there or, you know, try to get your friends to, you know, get your friends together and go, things like that, when you could all just go over Mike's house or invite everybody over your house and just play uh, play games there. I mean, the Super Nintendo had a very strong stranglehold on the video game market at this time. The Genesis was right there with it in 1994 and you know the games themselves were just more of a motivation for people to stay home so i can understand why he shut his arcade down in 1994 um but uh so 
to describe the arcade itself, um, it was a wonderful place. It was great. I mean, I'll talk about it in more depth when I do my arcade review of Arnie's Place uh, in a future episode. But I remember when I went there with Mark in, like, I think it was 1983, maybe 84. It was one of those two years. I know it was one of those two. But um, I remember walking this place and just being, like, in awe, but not in the way, like, in when I first went to Milford Rec, when I was in awe because of the sheer number of games, you know, when I first went to Milford Rec in like 1982 or 83, um, the sheer number of games just hit me upside the head. It was like video gaming heaven, Nirvana, Mecca, whatever term you want to use. In Arnie's place, it was more just the ambiance of the place. I loved it. I mean, um, when you look at my, uh, my, uh, profile picture on Instagram, or the profile picture on uh, Anchor from which this podcast is based, there's a picture, you see a picture of somebody playing a video game, and the uh, video game cabinet itself is like in like a cubby hole, and it's lined with like uh, incandescent light bulbs. That's Arnie's place. I mean, it had this 60s, 1960s to 1970s um Casino, Las Vegas casino feel. It was awesome. You know, each one, you know, they had a wooden enclosure for the game to sit in, and each one had lights around lining it. It was fantastic. And it was just a great place to go. It was a, certainly a change, because uh, it wasn't like the bare-bones place of, like, Trumbull Mall Arcade. It wasn't quite like, it was had a much more uh had a much better experience than Spanky's did, even though I love Spanky's to death, but you know, it was lacking in some ways. Um both places kinda hit you over the head with how many machines they had. I mean, Milford Rack had at least I wanna say at least seventy five machines, maybe even as many as a hundred. And Spanky's had at least fifty. Those were like the two biggest arcades around. And Arnie's was right there with them. I think they had at the height of a height of their uh, power, so to speak. I think in like 1983, 84. I think Arnie's had like 50 games, and but each one had that cabinet, and there was always music coming in from a rock station in Fairfield, if I'm remembering correctly, and it also had this the kind of uh, carpeting on the floor that you would find in uh, a Las Vegas casino, you know, the type where your foot kind of sinks in slightly, you know, sort of like, you know, it sort of takes the uh, exhaustion out of your legs, so to speak, just kind of soaks it up, but, I mean, I loved the place, it was fantastic, um, but the problem was is that I couldn't get to it anywhere near as often as I would like. Um, in order for me to get there by myself, I'd have to take two buses um, out to Westport, and I would have to walk another, I'd say probably half a mile to a mile down US-1 to get there. And, of course, you know, if I'm using public transit, I'll have to make sure 
to catch probably the, the second to last bus heading back towards downtown Bridgeport and then catch the number eight going home. So my time there was limited. I probably could spend maybe two or three hours there tops before I'd have to turn around and go home. I rode my bike out there once or twice. I think once by myself and then once with my uh, high school friends, Rob, Dave, and Edgar. Um, we all... Uh, Robert had a bike. I had to borrow one of Dave's bikes, and I think Edgar had a bike, and so did, and Dave had another bike. So we all basically got gathered together at Dave's house, and we would just ride down uh, Fairfield Avenue until it joined up with the Post Road, and then we would just continue on to Fair go through Fairfield and over to Westport. You know, it, it took us about I'd say what. 25 30 minutes to get there um but you know i have memories of that um i loved their selection of machines because they had pretty much everything from ranging from oh late 70s early 80s all the way up to the present day whatever day that was be it you know 82 83 or 84 um And it was just a great place to go when I could get there. But the problem was is that, you know, unless I had the ambition to ride my bike for an hour heading back to my, you know, heading back home or, you know, coming from my house going out to Westport, you know, I'd have to go down all these, uh, all these uh, back roads to kind of, to kind of angle southwest towards Fairfield from where I lived. And it wasn't easy to get there, you know. It's not like riding your bike in, in Florida where the, you know, the roads are flat. And it's mostly flat. No, where I lived in Connecticut, it was pretty hilly. So, you know, any hills you had went down to get out there, you had to ride back up to get home. So it was kind of tough. But anyway, um, so, yeah, let me read a little bit out of the New York Times article. Um, let's see. This is uh, September 20th, 1994. Uh, New York Times article, which is kind of a big deal. Uh, let's see. It says, uh, For the first time in 12 years, Pac-Man and Turbo aren't working at Arnie's place. The arcade, which divided this wealthy suburb and led to repeated court battles, closed Sunday after customers played their last rounds of pinball, air hockey, and shoot 'em up games like Revolution. In the end, Arnie Kay, the flamboyant owner, said he was worn out from his disputes with town officials. Quote, I've spent more than a million dollars in legal fees fighting for my right to stay open, and we're not doing the business we used to do, he said. It's a combination of economics and disgust. I feel I've been harassed by the town long enough, and it's time to pack it in. Town officials, however, say that harassment went both ways. They recall Mr. K's threats to turn the arcade located on the Post Road, that's US-1 for those who don't know, uh, into a pornographic theater and to let members of the Hells Angels take up residence there, as well as his refusable to, refusal to comply with zoning regulations. Still, there is no nostalgia about the closing of the arcade, which Mr. K, 53 at the time, said was moving to Brewster, New York, about an hour away under new owners. I'm saddened that it's closing, said William uh, Seiden, 
a former first selectman who opposed the arcade's opening and once had Mr. K arrested for trying to force his way into Mr. Seiden's office. <laughs> wow. Arnie was, Arnie was a firecracker. Apparently he didn't take crap from anybody. To continue, I made the mistake on the game room, no doubt about that, Mr. Seiden said. I thought it would be detrimental to the kids, but it wasn't. He ran it well, and it ended up being a big asset for the town. It became a good place for young people to play. Most town officials felt otherwise in 1982. And that's where I'll stop it there. Uh, basically, I can kind of understand it. But, yeah, reading this story... Um, yeah, it, I cannot kind of understand how he, a man like him would have problems with uh you know problems with uh residents and town officials because i considering how westport was back in the 80s and 90s and it hasn't gotten much better since then at least not in my opinion sorry for anyone listening to this living in westport but you kind of know it's true but anyway those are my memories of uh arnie's place uh if you have any thoughts comments questions uh, just get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, with that done, we are going to move on to Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Hobie, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arse to my heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Donkey Kong. <laughs> like I've said with... Uh, let's see. Let's go down the list. Space Invaders in 78. Asteroids in Galaxian in 79. Pac-Man in 1980. Uh, when... Donkey Kong hit the arcade in 1981. People went nuts. <laughs> they certainly did. When this game hit Trumbull Arcade, it was exactly like how the games I just mentioned uh, really turned people on. I mean, it was like I've said, these are, without trying to be punny, game changers. What I mean by that is, is that games when a game comes out and there's just such a rush and a and a mania to play it that it basically just changes the land the video gaming landscape and it seemed going from 78 going i'd say probably about 83 is when it kind of stopped but from those those five to six years in there there was at least one game that sort of just revolutionized the uh, gaming industry and Donkey Kong was one of them so to give you a little information about it from Wikipedia of course see the first game is a action platform game featuring Donkey Kong as the opponent in an industrial construction setting. Uh, Donkey Kong was released, of course, in 1981, and he faced Jumpman, later named Mario. 
uh, and basically Mario was Mario is trying to rescue his girlfriend Pauline from the clutches of Donkey Kong, a giant ape. It's sort of a cute version of King Kong in a way, and Donkey Kong was made by Shigeru Miyamoto, who is one of the legends of video game creation. I mean, he's, if he's not above these people, he's certainly on a par with guys like Eugene Jarvis and um, Carol Shaw, who made River Raid, um, and people who were, again, revolution, revolutionaries of video gaming. Uh, whether it be on the home front or the arcade front, it kind of doesn't matter, at least not in my opinion. But he created, he basically made Nintendo into a worldwide video gaming power, you know, just on the strength of Donkey Kong. And, you know, it was just crazy. It was just crazy. Uh, let's see. The original arcade Donkey Kong game was created when Shigeru Miyamoto was assigned the was assigned by Nintendo to convert convert Radar Scope, a game that had been released to test audiences with poor results, into a game that would appeal more to Americans. The result was a major breakthrough for Nintendo and for the video game industry. Like I said, sales of the machine were brisk, with the game becoming one of the best-selling arcade machines of the early 1980s. The gameplay itself was a large improvement over other games of its time, and with the growing base of arcades to sell to, it was able to gain huge distribution. In the game, Jumpman, the character that would later become Mario, must ascend a construction site while avoiding obstacles such as barrels and fireballs to rescue Pauline, his girlfriend from Donkey Kong. Both the Donkey Kong and its sequel, Donkey Kong Jr., were, like I said, just, how should I say it? They were such. They were such such so different from other games that came out. Um, most of the games that came out in the early '80s were space-based. Most of them. I mean, you you know, there were other games like Pac-Man and things like that that weren't like that. But that's where most people, most companies, were making games out of because of the. Uh, success of Star Wars in 1977, then The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, then Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979. Those three movies kind of really shifted a lot of people's attention towards science fiction in those days. I know, I was there. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, when this came out, everybody wanted to play it. Everyone. You know, I remember walking the arcade and... I couldn't even get close to the Donkey Kong game unless I walked in the arcade right when it opened at like 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, just tons of people were there, and there were tons of quarters on the game bezel. Um, as I said, that was arcade etiquette back, back in the day. When someone was playing a game you wanted to play, you basically put a quarter on the bezel or somewhere near the start buttons or something like that or on the junction where the screen and the control panel was so that everyone knew that you had you were up next 
and that's how it had to be because when a lot of these games came out, a lot of people wanted to play them. I mean, I've already told a couple stories about how uh, a couple of the rich kids that would frequent the arcade would just come in with, you know, $10 and get it all in quarters and, you know, hog the Missile Command machine or the Pac-Man machine all, the, you know, for a long time until, you know, Carlo basically just would tell them, hey, you guys are hogging the machine. Let's my, there are other people want to play this, you know, lay off, you know things like that would happen so i mean i loved it because it was one of those games that was always wherever i went arcade wise almost every arcade that i went to back in the day had it i mean like i said trouble mall had it spanky's had it uh milfarec certainly had it um you know every arcade that you know i frequented in my childhood there was a donkey kong machine there and you would also see it in mom and pop uh, grocery stores and bodegas and places like that because that, like I said, that's a quick way to make money in the video gaming boom from of the early 80s. So that game was around a lot. Um, the good thing about you know about it is that you can find it almost everywhere. Uh, the the systems that had Donkey Kong ports, Donkey Kong ports, excuse me, uh, systems that had Donkey Kong ports were the Atari 2600, ColecoVision, Amiga uh, 500, Apple II, Atari 7800, uh, Intellivision, the Commodore 64, Commodore VIC-20, uh, IBM PCs, the X-Spectrum, Amstrad, the Atari 8-bit family, and so on and so forth. It was all over the place. I remember um, in 1983, there was this huge, uh, this huge ad campaign uh, for um, I want to say it was like Atari games because of somehow, some way they got the licensing for a lot of these games or something like that. I'd have to look at like a comic book because that's where I would see it on the backs of comic books where they would say. Donkey Kong is coming home, or Frogger is coming home, and you would see, like, a kid sitting in, you'd see, like, nine pictures of TV screens with the various video game systems of the particular game that they're advertising. They did this all over the place. It was crazy. But, you know, that was how you knew you could find, you know, Donkey Kong for the Intellivision, or for the ColecoVision. Well, the the Donkey Kong actually came with the ColecoVision when it was released in 1982, which was huge, because up until that time, there wasn't... If you wanted to play Donkey Kong, you had to play it um, in the arcade. And the problem was, is that... Um, I, I want to say maybe the Atari 2600 version came out, and the Intel, I think the Intellivision version came out in 82 or 83, somewhere in there. But when the ColecoVision came out in 1982, people went crazy. Because, number one, that was the, Donkey Kong was the game that came with the ColecoVision, but it was so close to the arcade, it was ridiculous. I mean, there's only like one major league difference between ColecoVision, arcade, ColecoVision Donkey Kong and Arcade Donkey Kong. 
uh, one of the uh, actual boards was missing, one of the actual uh, screens. Uh, in the arcade version of Donkey Kong, there are four screens that you have to go through, and uh, depending on you know what level you're playing at, um, and in the ColecoVision version, there were only three. That was the only major difference. Um, but the the graphics were so close to the original Donkey Kong, it was it was crazy, and that was the major selling point for ColecoVisions at first back in '82, because they didn't have a lot. They didn't have a ton of games. I think when the ColecoVision came out, I want to say they had like eight games maybe, and then uh, various manufacturers would start making uh, games for the ColecoVision, and the library would just explode. Um, but yeah, I mean, I will probably cover Donkey Kong in um, uh, time for some strategy, but uh, I'm not going to go into the game game mechanics right now. We'll just I'll just save that for another time. But the good thing about it is is that um, if I want to play Donkey Kong, I can go to uh, the arcade in Brighton has. Oh, they have a whole row of Donkey Kong machines. They've got the original Donkey Kong. They had three original cabinets at one point. I think they uh, got rid of a couple. Um, they had Junior Donkey Kong. They had Donkey Kong 3. They had um, the uh, new releases of Donkey Kong that came out that are much more difficult than the original game. Um, both of them. They had Donkey Kong 2, as a matter of fact. It was, you know, to see, it, it was really impressive to see that in the arcade when, uh, when I first started going there. That was one of the major points, of, that was one of the major points in that arcade's uh, favor. But anyway, um, so, yeah, I'll just, I'll just stop it right here, because I could probably go on about this for another hour, and it's already late. <laughs> uh, so, anyway. Uh, those are my thoughts about Donkey Kong and, and my memories and so forth and so on. And if you have any uh, to share, just get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, from there, we shall go to Home Systems. There is no place like home. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys. I'm a game. Grandpa! I'm going home! Home Systems. The Atari 5200. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start this off by saying I got one of these for Christmas in 1983. Um... The price for them had come down quite a bit from when they got released in 82 because they weren't exactly selling like hotcakes. Let's just put it that way. I'm just going to be honest about it. Um, and I just remember <laughs> begging my mother for a 5200 and my mother's like, you already have an Atari. Why do you want this? And I'm like, Mom, the games are better. That's why I want it. And I think I did barely well enough in school at the time for her to purchase one. And so she did. And I immediately took it, 
put it in my room, brought it up into my room, hooked it up, turned it on, and started playing Pac-Man, and just playing it and playing it and playing it, because the reason why I wanted a, a, a 5200 was basically because of Pac-Man. <laughs> uh, Pac-Man for the 2600 came out in 1982, late 82, somewhere around this. I'll have to look it up later, but I think it came out sometime as, around this time. It was somewhere in 82, and this was one of the games, whether rightly, justly, or unjustly, this is one of the games that sort of started the the uh, domino effect for the video game crash of 1983, because they what they put forward was nothing close to the arcade Pac-Man. I mean, they got away with it with Space Invaders because you know they did a good enough job with Space Invaders, and it was enough like the arcade space invaders that you could look you could take say look at the differences and say okay no big deal you know it's plays like space invaders they may look different but and they still have the naming license so you know that's okay but pac-man was it was a maze game and it looked like it should it looked like basically a uh prototype you know it it just wasn't the same experience as Pac-Man. It just wasn't. And <laughs> the funny part is, is that ever you know, ever since Pac-Man, someone actually wrote a arcade translation of Pac-Man for the 2600. So it could have been done. But like I said, this was the one of the first steps to, towards the video game Crash of 83. So that was one of the main reasons why I wanted a 5200 in the first place is that I wanted an actual Pac-Man that I could play at home I play. I remember renting Pac-Man from the Video Connection and by the way I will be talking about Video Connection in the very next episode stay tuned um, and how important that place was but I remember renting Pac-Man in 1982 and just not being very happy with it being not being very pleased with it the, it, it just it could have been better than it was but by this time in 82 atari had such a stranglehold on the video game market that the, you know it's like i've said uh, whenever i talk about the crash it's my personal opinion it may not even be con you know concurrent with what actually happened but I believe that part of what happened that caused the video game crash was corporate arrogance. That there were certain people at Atari who knew nothing about video games. Only only thing they cared about was how many units a game system or a game sold. And um, it didn't matter what you put out as long as it sold 100,000 units. It didn't matter. And, you know, Atari had already had uh, a falling out with a lot of their game creators, you know, who went on to create Activision. Uh, and it was just something that, it was just one, just, you could see where, you could see the iceberg up ahead as far as video gaming went when it came to the cavalier attitude 
and the greed and the arrogance and the incompetence of people who were in charge of not only Atari but you know other video game manufacturers or and, or companies and you could see this coming you know right down the pipe i think you know and uh et and also i think it was the earth world series those three games pretty much sort of signaled the beginning of the end for or not the beginning of the end but it certainly signaled certainly were indicators that a crash was coming and um but getting back to getting back to the 5200 and when i got that game i played it nonstop for a while for a long time actually it, i i almost put my 2600 in storage because it was such a great version of pac-man that you know i couldn't put it down but after a while of course by this time you know i got so good at it that i got bored with it and I used to have to go to um, a friend of mine, Damon, who lived down the street. He had a 5200, and I would borrow games from him. Or I'd go to my cousin, Matt, who lived a few houses down from me, and try to borrow games from him, you know, because I couldn't afford them because the games were more expensive because it's basically an Atari 8, 400, 800 computer without the keyboard. That's basically what it is. And... You know, the games were exactly the same as um, games that were on the Atari 400 or 800 computer, and but the games were so good that it didn't matter, at least not to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I owned that Atari 5200 for a very long time. I think all the way up until I moved out of uh moved out of connecticut in 1993 it's either that i think i gave it away i don't remember now but um let's read a little information from wikipedia about the 5200 okay the atari 5200 super system that's what it was called back in the day <laughs> um is a video home video game console that was introduced in 1982 by atari incorporated as a higher-end complementary complimentary console for the popular Atari 2600. The 5200 was created to compete with the Intellivision, but wound up more directly competing with the ColecoVision shortly after its release. That's true. Um, there was a little bit... I mean, it wasn't like Atari 2600 Intellivision um, rivalry, so to speak, but yeah, there was a little bit of the Atari 5200 versus the ColecoVision. Um, there's sort of a little bit of a rivalry there. Um, the 5200's internal hardware is almost identical to that of Atari's 8-bit computers, and that is true, uh, although software is not directly compatible between the two systems. The 5200's controllers have an analog joystick and a numeric keypad, along with start, pause, and reset buttons. Uh, the 360 non-centering joystick, 360 degree, let me get it right, the 360 degree non-centering joystick was touted as offering more control than the eight-way joystick controller offered with the Atari 2600. Or, to me, yeah, but ugh, to, quite honestly, the controllers let this system down so bad it was not even funny. Um, 
on May 21st, 1984, during a press conference at which the Atari 7800 was introduced, company executives revealed that the 5200 had been discontinued after just two years on the market. Total sales of the 5200 were reportedly in excess of 1 million units. Yeah, the controllers. <laughs> um, let's see. Let's see. The initial 1982 release of... The system featured four controller ports, where near all other systems of the day had only one or two ports. The 5200 featured a new style of controller with an analog joystick, numeric keypad, two fire buttons on each side of the controller, and game function keys for start, pause, and reset. Which was actually pretty cool. That was one of the things that kind of you know, set it apart from the uh, other gaming systems, with the possible exception of the Intellivision. Um... The 5200 also featured the innovation of being the first automatic TV switch box, allowing it to automatically switch from regular TV viewing to the game, sy game system signal when the system was activated. Previous RF adapters required the, users to s they required the user to slide a switch on the adapter by hand. The RF box was also where the power supply was connected in a unique dual power television signal setup similar to the RCA Studio 2. A single cable coming out of the 5200 plugged into the switch box and was used for both electricity and the television signal. See, I didn't know that because I plugged mine in, at least from my, what I remember, I plugged mine in into an RF box. Hmm, that's very interesting. But yeah, the, the controllers, which were basically the same as the... Uh, the ColecoVision controllers. The problem is, is that the problem with them is that uh, they the controls were a little sluggish. The joysticks were a little sluggish. The fire buttons weren't uh, in a really good position for you to use them. You know, even you know, of course, you were using it, you know, using the game to using controller two handed, but from what I remember, yeah, it made things really, really tough. You know, really, really tough to play. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I mean, when I borrowed games from that, I borrowed, like, uh, Robotron and Defender. Um, I think my friend Damon had Congo Bongo for the 5200 and a couple other games, but, you know, that was the problem, is that um, the games were a little more expensive, and my mother seriously balked at, you know, buying them for me. And unfortunately, I wasn't quite old enough to get a job yet, so, you know, I was kind of stuck. Um, let's see. Uh, the 5200 did not fare well commercially compared to its predecessor, the 2600. While it touted superior graphics to the 2600 and Mattel's Intellivision, the system was initially incompatible with the 2600's expensive library of games, and some market analysts speculated that it hurt sales. I tend to, I tend to agree. Um, especially since an Atari 2600 cartridge adapter had been released for the Intellivision 2. A, re a revised two-port model was uh, released in 1983 along with a game adapter that allowed gamers to play all 2600 games. Now see, if they had done this in the beginning, if they had done this in the beginning, this the system, I think, would have seriously uh, had more legs. But short-sightedness again you know um 
Many of the 5200 games appeared to simply be updated versions of 2600 tile titles, which failed to excite customers. Its packing game, Super Breakout, was criticized for not doing enough to demonstrate the system's capabilities, and this gave the ColecoVision a significant advantage when its pack-in Donkey Kong delivered a more authentic arcade experience than any previous game cartridge, and that is true. That is so true, and I'll talk about that when we get to this ColecoVision. As in its list of top 25 games consoles of all time, IGM claimed that the main reason for the 5200's market failure was the technological superiority of its competitor, while other sources maintained that the two consoles are roughly equivalent in power. Um, the 5200 received much criticism for the sloppy design of its non-centering analog controllers. Anderson described the controllers as absolutely atrocious, and I tend to agree. You know, it was, that was probably the main thing that let it down. And the fact that it just wasn't, it should have been better than it was. It really should have, but unfortunately, it just wasn't. You know, it was just one of those games where, yeah, I got one in 83, and then it was gone. <laughs> and that's pretty much that. You know, it just couldn't hold up under the, popularity of the ColecoVision. You know, it was the ColecoVision when it came out in 82, you know, that was pretty much a wrap. You know, especially once they got the 2600 uh game adapter, which I'll get into again when we talk about the ColecoVision. But that that's the 5200. I loved the games, but man oh man did those controllers let that system down. Seriously. And like like was said, you know, I remember the f yeah I remember the first generation of the the 5200 having Super Breakout. That wasn't enough. I mean, they got their you know heads out of their backsides and they actually got Pac-Man, which I think they should have gotten from the start. <laughs> that would have helped them out immensely. But okay, that's uh, the, the Atari 5200. And if you've got any questions, thoughts, comments. Get a hold of me once again at arcadeaddictbrian, all one word, at gmail.com. And I think that's going to do it for now. Okay, so we have a, I'll let you guys know right now, we have a jam-packed show for episode 10. Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at what I've got uh, on my list here, and I'm just like, oh my god. <laughs> what was I thinking? But I'm not going to change it. I'm going to I'm going to put the show out as uh, as I as I put it down on my uh, show notes file. So stay tuned for that. I'll give you a little I'll give you a little taste. Um, I'll be talking about the video connection. Uh, Top tens comes back for 1983. Uh, there is a segment for story time coming up, and also we have a segment for time for some strategy. So we've got that those four right in there. So stay tuned. Um, uh, as soon as I get this one out, I will certainly record episode 10 as soon as I can. So until next time, this is Brian. Have fun out there. Good gaming. Au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music is provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at Incompetech.com. If you wish to contact the show, 
you can drop an email at arcadeaddictryan, that's all one word, at gmail.com. We also have a voicemail number for the show. It is 734-743-2433. Until next time, this is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. <laughs>